This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Good to have you with us on Community or Chaos. Hopefully more community and less chaos, though that seems hard to believe right now. We'll be talking with Chris Trotter, a journalist and political commentator, from the left, who is a, originally a Dunedinite and now a Aukenite, and writes a very useful column plus a good blog. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcasting, going to community or chaos. Well, Chris, welcome to Community or Chaos. And when did you first take note of the pr- protest being held on the grounds of Parliament? And what was your first impression of the protesters? Well, the first I heard of it, I think, was from my wife, who follows Twitter a great deal more assiduously than I do. And uh, she was picking up a lot of quite uh, uh, comic uh, tweets in regards uh, to this convoy that was apparently heading towards Wellington from uh, uh, opposite ends of the country. And I immediately uh, made the connection, as I'm sure everybody else did, uh, with what was happening in Ottawa in Canada and saw this as something very similar. And that, I have to say, alarmed me because what was very clear about the Canadian protest was that it was out of the ordinary. Most protests in Canada uh, and New Zealand and Australia and and most other countries are very um, time-specific. You meet, you march, you assemble, people deliver speeches, they may issue... Uh, a set of uh, demands or pre- present a petition, uh, a whole lot of uh, things that you can do at a protest. You can even sing, as I recall doing in my youth long, long ago. But then you um, depart. You, you leave um, the, uh, the venue and go about your business. 
And it was very clear from the start that the people in Ottawa were not intending to leave. Uh, indeed, they had these, these very large uh, trucks or uh, truck trailers, which they were using to blockade the, the democratic centre of Canada, uh, the square outside um, the parliament. And so I was a little anxious right from the beginning because I thought if they are modelling themselves on the Canadian protest, then we are going to see something very similar happen uh, in New Zealand. We're going to see motor vehicles clogging the centre of the city, surrounding the parliament buildings, and the people are not going to leave. They're going to, in a sense... um, uh, hold the the capital city um, hostage, pending the government's uh, capitulation to their demands. Now, this is not a democratic protest. Clearly, um, governments are elected by the people, and and until they are unelected by the people, they have the right to govern. They have the right to set policy. People can certainly protest the policy. They can certainly complain. They can write about it. They can speak about it. They can march about it. But they do not have the right to set the policy. If they want to set the policy, they need to set themselves up as a political party and win seats in the parliament and do it the constitutional way. So this was always um, an alarming uh, proposition from my perspective. And uh, I did not believe that any good would come from it at all. So, were you surprised at the size and general hostility of it? And how would you describe? You've already s- said that you were. It was modeled on the Amer- uh, Canadian and American examples. Well, there were other aspects to the New Zealand protest which uh, may not have been there in Canada. At least in its early stages, it was very much a trucker's protest. They didn't like the idea of having to have uh, vaccination or or, um, PCR tests before going backwards and forwards across the border to the United States. Uh, And they may have had a legitimate grievance there. I wasn't, you know... No, but they couldn't really. Af- I mean, they both, both the Canadian and the U.S. government under Biden and Trudeau, were enforcing this. Well, um, yes, they 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 moved uh, against the people blocking the Washington Bridge um, eventually, but uh, that took some doing too. No, I'm saying that uh, the both governments enforce mandated vaccination for crossing the border. Well, yes, and and I'm I'm not quibbling with the with the government policies on either side of the border. I'm just saying that that was the specific protest of the truckers. Yeah, it expanded afterwards once the the uh, protest became established. The occupation of of the centre of Ottawa um, became a reality. Then the demands of the uh, protesters escalated quickly, right up and, uh, until they were calling for the resignation of the prime minister and new elections and goodness knows what. Uh, and in that sense, the New Zealand protest, I think, 
was probably a little quicker off the mark because very, very early on, almost as soon as the people arrived in the capital, it was clear that there was some very uh, aggressive uh, elements within the crowd and some quite chilling um, statements emerging uh, from various individuals. Uh, and now this once again set this protest apart from others. Although I noticed, you know, people have been looking back through our recent history and have found examples for, of, of people, you know, setting up a mock guillotine and beheading um, various uh, luminaries within uh, the government of the day, which I, I think was a national government, um, which isn't that far away, I would say, conceptually, from people wandering around with scaffolds and uh, hangman's uh, nooses. Um, not, not, not very savoury, but once again, uh, I think the protest where the guillotine was in evidence uh, was uh, an anti-Trans-Pacific Partnership um, protest. But it was just for the day, you know. People came, they had their street theatre, and they left. Um, this was in that th case. This it, really was a, 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 a step up. This um, was street theatre in that case. These people, you wonder if they mean it. Is it really? Well, theater? I think. Well, I think this is this is the problem for many inside Parliament, the the members of Parliament, their staff. Um, the press gallery, the journalists who cover Parliament. I mean, they have have been addressed directly by people threatening to execute them um, or hang them. Uh, and uh, you know, this is this is really quite distressing for people. I mean, as as anyone can well imagine. Well, I'm aware. Uh, and and it's not and it's not it's not common uh, in New Zealand protest. Uh, for those sort of uh, um, threats to be made. People get angry. People get passionate uh, in protests. Gosh, I'm old enough to remember the, the Springbok tour, uh, as are you, Marvin, of 1981, uh, and how passionate people became. Uh, I remember um, also that many of us were willing to take responsibility for breaking the law. We'd break the law. But we were willing to go to prison or jail if we needed to. Oh, that's right. And we had um, a respect for the law. Yes, at the same time, yes, we were. And, well, yeah, in, in a funny sort of way. I mean, if the law wasn't enforced, the tactics, <laughs> the tactics were nowhere near as effective. I mean, civil disobedience, nonviolent direct action. I mean, these were the principles of most of the protests and. There had been a great deal of preparation on the part of Hart and upon the part of local uh, groups to really instill um, not just the, the tactics, but the whole ethos of nonviolent direct action and uh, passive resistance, civil disobedience. You know, the, the models were there in uh, Mahatma Gandhi and, and in um, Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, and and these were the models that, that people were following. Uh, but you don't, you don't sense that same uh, philosophical uh, awareness among the crowd outside 
parliaments. Uh, this is a very disparate group of people and, and, and incohate, to use a lovely Latinate word, in other words, not coherent uh, and, and extremely angry. Uh, and once again, there is a distinction um, between this crowd and many of the crowds uh, during the, the Springbok tour protests. In as much as um, passive resistance meant passive resistance, you sat down, you went limp. I mean, I watched for several hours the police attempting to clear the grounds on Thursday, February 10th, and it was quite clear to me that people in the crowd were quite happy to mix it with the constables. Um, in fact, some of them you know, were quite uh, uh, traumatized by it all um, and, and hurt. Uh, and uh, only this morning, I mean, we have seen some extremely disturbing uh, developments. Uh, and really, it, it can't be very far now, it seems to me, from there being uh, a, a clear and present threat of uh, injury or death to, to persons uh, and serious uh, damage to property. Which, which really requires the police to step in uh, and put an end to it. The people that work in the neighborhood, many of them have actually work from home. And oftentimes, I think, when people needed to go into Parliament for information or data or, or to get something, they haven't felt able to. No, that's right. There has been a great deal of hostility directed um, at perfectly innocent People. I mean, the most notable example, I think, at least in the early days, was of um, a young um, school student um, innocently passing uh, by the protest wearing uh, her face mask, who was accosted and jostled and, and uh, harangued um, by a group of, of, of the protesters. I mean, this is just not on. Um, and... You know, I, I was all for going in boots and all. I mean, I, I, I wrote a piece uh, for um, Martin Bradbury's The Daily Blog quite early on when I said states can never allow um, uh, people to threaten them directly. Uh, it's, it's beholden upon the state to defend itself always for the obvious reason that if it doesn't, then the citizenry become very frightened uh, because they look to the state and the agents of the state um, to protect them uh, and to uphold the law uh, and, and to look after their property and their persons and going about their lawful business. Um, and they become very alarmed if the state refuses to do that or appears to be refusing to do that and of course, on the other side, those who would challenge the state are immediately emboldened. They, they, they feel that they're pushing on an open door. And that never, generally speaking, encourages people to stop pushing. Um, so I was all in favor. You know, I know we may see some unpleasantness, um, um, but it's, it's better to get in early and stop it than to have it escalate so that the amount of force required to control it in the end turns out to be far, far greater than, than uh, would have been required right at the beginning. But that's I listened... The, that's, one of the question, that's one of the questions I was going to ask you. Because 
Uh, I know that the police in the last 10 years have had a, a uh, the, uh, have tried to minimize violence in protests and communicate. And this most of the time will work after a bit. But could, wouldn't, wouldn't there, and I know also the Parliamentary Service Committee may have declared, asked to, the uh, police to, to uh, help them with moving the tents the first day or two. And yes, that was, I understand that, was, that, that, that happened, uh, or, or more to the point it didn't happen. Claire Trevette of the New Zealand Herald wrote about this. Uh, right at the beginning, the parliamentary security staff asked the police to help them move the tents, and the police declined. And that was the time that. to, that you might have stopped it without too much of a problem. Well, yes, although what I was going to say, Marvin, was that I listened very carefully to the interview between um, Q&A's Jack Tame and the Commissioner of Police, Andrew Costa. And I have to say that I was very impressed by Costa. Um, I can see why he got the job. Uh, and one of the things he said which really struck me uh, was that the police are required to do two things. They are required to enforce the law, but they are also required to keep the peace. And as he said, usually these things go together without any problems. If you've got an affray or you've got some domestic violence, then by enforcing the law, you restore the peace. You keep the peace. But, and I think he's got a real point here, um, and as he said, the police have the resources to end this. They could tog their constables up in, in body armor and helmets and visors and gas masks and uh, heavy gloves and heavy boots with big, full-body um, uh, riot shields, long batons, pepper spray, even tear gas, which has never been used in uh, crowd control in this country, and I'd hate to see it used. He said, we could do all that. We could enforce the law. But only at the cost of a huge breach of the peace. Because he said, what would happen next? What's, what's next? What, after you've battened these guys and women, and don't forget that over half of the people in that protest are women, and there are children there too. Um, after you've done that, what do you think they do? They've all got cell phones. They're all recording videos of what's happening. What happens if you go in very hard and all these images of people having their heads cracked or getting pepper sprayed are spread across the whole country? What happens then? Have you got more peace or less peace, do you think? And I thought to myself, the guy's got a point. You know, it's all very well to clear the site, but, you know, history doesn't stop. Um, and so I, 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 I began to rethink my, you know, going boots and all, and, and I've been watching over the last 48 hours the, the evolution of the police tactics. And I think, you know, there is a very 
sophisticated strategy at work here. Um, I think by putting the, the great concrete bollards all around the the uh, the castle wall, if you like, made of motor vehicles, which the protesters erected to protect their encampment on Parliament grounds. Well, now the encirclement is itself encircled, and this will put, and it's proving to have put, quite a lot of psychological stress on the protesters. Um, many have left after yesterday morning and the concrete blocks going up around them. Um, this morning, the police edged in even closer to the protesters' perimeter and elicited even more outrageous behaviour. I mean, as if throwing excrement at the police wasn't bad enough. Yesterday morning, this morning, someone you know, drove uh, a motor vehicle straight at them. Now, what this is setting up, I think, in the public's mind, is uh, a, a, an image of what the protest is. And I think the image of what the protest is, um, if ever people had sort of begun to think, oh, it doesn't look so bad. It looks like a uh, like a hippie, um, you know, um, lovin' or a, or, a, or a music festival. I mean, these people can't be all bad. And that was very much what a, a lot of people at the site were trying to promote and doing so, you know, with, with quite a bit of help, I might say, from the mainstream media. But that, I think, has been dispelled over the last 48 hours. Um, quite dramatically. And now I think the only very one-eyed people are, are now expressing support for the protest. And I think what Commissioner Costa has done is he has, in a sense, given his police officers the right to break up the protest. Uh, they have thrown the first stone as it were, or the first handful of excrement. Um, and so they they cannot claim with any kind of uh, credibility that the police have come in hard, come in early, thrown their weight around, hurt people for no good reason because, you know, these were just peaceful protesters and they had reasonable grievances and why isn't anyone listening to them? I mean, that was the narrative they needed to establish. And what I think Costa and, and his commanders have done is make that extremely hard for them now. Um, and the more I think his men and women begin to encroach on the, uh, on the encampment of the protesters, A, I think more and more people will leave. Uh, because they will be fearful, um, especially if they've got kids there. I mean, I, I, I cannot for the life of me understand why anyone would keep their children in that environment. But um, I think it will get smaller, and, and the people who will be left will be the hardcore. And they will, they will behave in a way which makes the whole country say, well, you can't tolerate this. Yeah, it was unfortunate to see batons used, you know, pepper spray. It was unfortunate to see people hurt. But really, what other option did the police have? And that's what I think um, uh, Andrew Costa is working towards. Because in the back of his mind, I think, 
is first and foremost the Springbok tour. I wouldn't be at all surprised to discover he's done sort of <laughs> some sort of uh, academic research into the Springbok tour because he, he he seems to be very seized on what happened and the consequences of what happened and 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 the the damage it inflicted on public perceptions of the police. But also, I think at the back of his mind is the more recent. Um, the more recent uh, problems uh, in the Uruweras, uh, particularly the, the police action at the little village of Ruatoki, uh, which saw heavily armed and armoured police with all the gear, the helmets, the visors, the masks, um, descend like the wrath of God on the sleepy little um, Maori settlement and uh, Whatever concerns the police had about possible terrorist action in the Uruweras was completely forgotten because all people saw were these terrifying armed um, police, and um, I think the 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 ramifications of that Ruatoki raid uh, are still felt in the senior echelons of the police. They do not want that sort of bad publicity again. Uh, and they're, they're only too aware of how easy it is for political activists to take those sort of images and turn them into a cause celeb. So those two things, the Springbok tour uh, and what happened uh, in, in Ruatoki way back, I think it was 2007, um, those those are deeply imprinted on the police mind, and they, they, they are hoping to learn um, from their experience, and I think Tosta is is demonstrating that. Um, and you know, I think the handling of Ihu Matau uh, showed just how successful uh, that softly, softly, keep talking, de-escalate. You know, whenever you can, uh, how successful that can be. On the other hand, I think it's really important to state that there was a, a, a clear structure of authority at the Ihu uh, Matau protest. There were, were leaders that could sit down with the police and talk to them, and I think there was a much uh, a much stronger discipline. Um, the take of of that protest was very clearly understood, and um, it it allowed a great deal of of self discipline on the part of. Uh, the people occupying um, the ground, uh, and and none of that, none of that is evident in, in the protest on Parliament grounds. Okay, I'm going to play a piece of music now, and then um, warn you: the music, the song is about America and about uh, what what happens with violence sometimes. Did you ever see a hangman tie a hangknot? Did you ever see a hangman tie a hangknot? I've seen it many a time, and he whines and he whines. After thirteen times he's got a hangknot. Tell me, will that hangknot slip? No, it will not. Will that hangknot slip? No, it will not. Slip around your neck 
but it won't slip back again. Hang not, hang not, that hang not. Did you ever lose a brother on that hang not? Did you ever lose a brother on that hang not? My brother was a slave and he tried to escape. They drug him to his grave on a hang knot. Did you ever lose your father on a hang knot? Did you ever lose your father on a hang knot? They hung him from a pole and they shot him full of holes, left him there to rot on that hang knot. Tell me who makes the laws for that hangnut? Who makes the laws for that hangnut? Who says who will go to the calaboose, get the hangman's noose or the hangnut? I don't know who makes the law for that hangnut. I don't know who makes the law for that hangnut. But the bones of many a men are whistling in the wind just because they tied their laws with a hangnut. That was Woody Guthrie talking about hanging, and he also had a song on there about vigilanteism and the use of uh, right-wing vigilantes to terrorize unions and terrorize minorities using hanging. So I was disturbed when um, newsmen and politicians were threatened with nooses. Can you tell me about the makeup of the parliamentary occupiers? Well, yeah. Um, I was very, very pleased to see that the, the new... Um, website known as the platform uh, which was launched by Sean Plunkett uh, a week or two ago uh, had the wit to commission Curia Research uh, which is David Farrar's um, polling company a reputable polling company even if it does work mostly for the National Party to go down to the protest and to um, interview a, a scientific sample um, in a scientific way uh, to discover um, just who they were. And it was very, very interesting because nearly 70% of the people in Parliament grounds uh, do not live in either Auckland, Wellington or Christchurch. In other words, they come from the provincial cities, towns and rural hamlets or farms. Uh, and, of course, uh, the percentage, nearly 40% uh, are from provincial cities. Uh, and uh, that's twice the number of people who, according to the census, actually live uh, in provincial cities. So what we were looking at here, Marvin, is something very, very similar uh, to the people who backed Donald Trump, who lived in what the, the 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 people who live on the east and west coast rather sneeringly call the flyover country, 
these were the, the Midwestern states, the southern states, um, uh, where over the last 30 years a huge amount of economic and social devastation has, has taken place. Uh, and it struck me as very, very um, interesting that this crowd uh, was made up of people from the provinces. Uh, it also showed that uh, there were more women than men present. Now, you know, there are almost always more women than men in any um, human population uh, in normal circumstances, but uh, that that usually is is around 51% versus 49%. Well, there's 55% of the people in the protest are women. Um, close to 30% of the people in the protest are Maori, and that's twice uh, the percentage of Maori-identifying New Zealanders that is revealed in the census, which is you know around uh, 14, 15, 16%. So uh, it's it's not uh, a crowd that is strictly speaking reflective of the New Zealand population. It's skewed towards the rural and provincial parts of New Zealand. Uh, it is more women uh, than men. It is disproportionately uh, Maori uh, by quite a significant margin. Um, in terms of what they're there for, uh, overwhelmingly, uh, the, the response from the people interviewed was that they are there because of the vaccine mandates. They are very strongly opposed um, to the vaccine mandates. Uh, it's also important to note that nearly 80% of them are unvaccinated, which must be a, a bit of a worry if if you're a frontline police officer, but um, but uh, that's what uh, David Farrar and his pollsters discovered. Uh, the other the other big word uh, in the um, the cloud of words uh, was freedom, of course, uh, and 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 this has been very passionately expressed uh, by virtually all of the people there. Uh, so we also have um, some very interesting political results. Uh, nearly 30% of the people outside Parliament voted Labour in the last um, election, and nearly half of them uh, voted, just under half, high 40s uh, from memory, voted either for Labour or for the Greens or for New Zealand first. So once again, you have that parallel uh, with the United States where political scientists discovered that the people who switched to Trump in some of those key battleground states um, around the Great Lakes uh, had, in the previous two presidential elections, voted for Barack Obama. So what, what you're seeing, I think, uh, is the consequence of 35 years of neoliberalism, which has stripped so many of uh, New Zealand's provincial cities and, and towns of their industries and of the small businesses which service those industries, 
Uh, it has stripped towns of post offices, of banks, of public hospitals, of local independent newspapers. Uh, that part of the country has, to a greater or lesser extent, been left to its own devices, while cities like Auckland have grown and grown and grown at the rate of a city the size of Timaru every year for a decade or more. Uh, so these are the people who are left behind. These are the people who have stayed rather than go to the three main centres. And if you elect to stay in a place that is declining economically, um, that is, is being hollowed out socially, then you become a particular type of New Zealander, it seems to me. Your trust in the government is low to non-existent because the government that now asks you to behave in a pro-social way, the government that now asks you to respect the collective interest has spent 35 years doing precisely the opposite. Um, at least for the people who live in those places. I mean, Maori, for example, uh, their communities, many of, of, of which were closely involved in the forestry industry and its downstream um, industries, were wiped out by Roger Nomans, just laid waste. Unemployment in the 40, 50, 60% range. People left their towns got smaller and smaller, their infrastructure decayed or disappeared. But the people who stayed were very hard people. They were hard scrabble people and they were people who had worked out a way to survive uh, without the state having too much to do with them and without them having too much to do with the state. And when the state first came calling in relation to the pandemic and the Prime Minister talked about the team of five million, I think they responded very positively because at last they, they were being included among the good and the just, which they hadn't been for a long time. Um, but the vaccination issue was one where they... They simply wouldn't take that jump. Now, you can argue till the cows come home um, with them about the wisdom of, of that choice, but that was the choice they made. And I think a lot of them, um, almost certainly the 30% who, who voted for her in the last election, remembered Jacinda saying that she wasn't going to make vaccination mandatory and she wasn't going to require people to carry vaccination passes. But in the end, the exigencies of the COVID pandemic forced her hand. We had Delta, we needed people to be vaccinated, the no jab, no job, the, uh, the vaccine passes were an extremely effective method of, of getting people um, inoculated against COVID. But it was taken as a complete betrayal by many of these people, um, a, a breaking of um, her word. And 
when they had been for a few months welcomed back into the great team of five million New Zealanders, only as as those months ran out to be told you'll do as we say or you'll become a second class citizen. Um, you'll do as we say or you'll lose your job. You'll do as we say or you won't be able to go to the pub or the local cafe or, or, or the swimming bath or anywhere. And they didn't like that. They really didn't like that. And their negative version of freedom. It's not freedom to, it's freedom from. Leave me alone. The famous flag that the American revolutionaries flew in the early part of the war against um, King George. Don't tread on me. The upraised snake. Um, that's the freedom that that they are fighting for. It's it's not a freedom to. It's not a a freedom to, you know, expand as a human being. It's not a freedom to build a better world. It's the freedom they demand to be left the hell alone. And that's why they're so angry. And 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 it's it's such a negative kind of feeling that it's very difficult for them to construct any kind of of credible positive argument for what for what they seek because what they seek is simply to be left alone and for the state to butt out which of course makes them easy prey for the far right because that's what the far right has been preaching for a long long time and that's what neoliberalism is all about after all telling the state to butt out so yeah they're they're easy meat um, for the algorithms of, of the social media giants. They're easy meat for the dark characters who hang around on on, uh, on Telegram and 8chan and all the other dark places of the Internet. But, you know, what we're seeing is what we've made. Um, the people who are there are our own creation. They are our own dark shadow. Yeah, I understand. People, that, the, like, yeah, the big the people in the in, in the big cities say, "What's wrong with these people? You know, these people. Why are they so antisocial? Why 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 won't they recognize the collective good? Or well, did we ever teach them how? Really? You know, they say, "Oh, they've fallen for the big lives." Well, is that any surprise? Given that. We're not really keen on telling big truths anymore. So, yeah, um, they're, they're us. They're our dark side. They're the chickens in their thousands coming home to roost. Well, I think I might play another song and then we'll come back.
That was um, Children of Darkness by Mimi and Richard Fremi from the 1960s. Uh, Mimi was the uh, sister of Joan Baez, but I thought it still speaks to our time. Oh, Chris, um, we've got to this place where we've alienated a huge part of the population. We've got to this place partly because the failure of party politics that it seems to me that over parts of Europe, Great Britain, and certainly the United States, you've had, and I think to to some degree in New Zealand, you have one party that represented quite clearly business and conservatism. And you had another party that represented the intellectuals and culture. But neither of those parties had a strong connection or economic concern for the average working person. I'm being a bit harsh there, but I think that's been the history of politics for the last 30 years. Well, certainly since Rogenomics, uh, what you've described is relatively fair. Uh, Labour in the 1980s uh, abandoned uh, the New Zealand working class. It must be said, however, that the New Zealand working class did not abandon Labour. Now, I know that you were a hard worker for the Alliance, uh, um, Marvin, and uh, I also know that uh, in those safe uh, Labour seats of Dunedin, uh, in spite of uh, occasionally doing very well, as as I recall, Leah McVeigh did in in the seat of St Kilda, um, as it was, or Dunedin South possibly by then. Uh, but Labour held the seats, um, regardless of whether the Labour Party was taken over by well-educated um, middle-class uh, professionals. They still voted for it. Um, I think the the structure of politics in New Zealand, throughout its its colonial um, post-colonial history, has been pretty clear. There is the the interest in the in the rural sector, which is pretty clear because New Zealand is a, a country that makes its money from the land. Uh, there are the interests from the um, towns and cities. Uh, and these are the interests of, of the merchants, uh, the financiers, uh, the professionals. And the parties which, which represented them um, were the Liberal Party um, for the cities um, and the Reform Party um, for the countryside and, and the provincial towns and cities. And then, you know, in the First World War, um, you got the formation uh, of the Labour Party uh, and it introduced a third character to the plot which was um, the New Zealand worker uh, and what happened was the New Zealand worker and 
the professionals and well-educated people came together and made labor and the countryside and the merchants and the bankers and the importers, uh, they came together and formed national. And that was the way it was um, uh, for close to 50 years um, until 1984, until labor uh, abandoned the social democratic policies uh, that had occasioned its formation uh, and embraced neoliberalism and and a kind of social liberalism, sometimes called identity politics, instead. And although um, people like yourself and myself did our best with New Labour and, and then later on uh, with the Alliance, to provide a place for the New Zealand worker it never really succeeded. Um, and so the, the New Zealand worker, male and female, young and old, really don't have anyone to speak for them. They have been pushed off the political stage. The only people left on the political stage now uh, are the the, the, the the merchant right, as Thomas Piketty calls them, and the Brahmin left, um, the intellectuals, as you as you rightly um, describe them, and they have their parties in the United States. It's you know the Republicans and the Democrats. Here it's the National Party and Labour Party, uh, with the Greens to one side, but the Greens ideology is largely um, indistinguishable from Labour's now. I mean, there was a time when they were very much an, uh, an ecological and, and, uh, and socialist um, party, but uh, no longer. Um, so that's where we are, and, and that goes back to, to, to what I described you know, before um, uh, Mimi and Richard Farina. Um, it's it's the people who have no voice. There is no party that speaks for them. Um, and what that means is that there is a vacuum and politics, like nature, abhors a vacuum. Uh, and into that vacuum, all manner of morbid um, individuals and political forces uh, are quick to make an appearance. And and so and so the people without leadership, um, without a party to call their own, um, are, are are easy meat. Thanks a lot, Chris. Far right. Um, thanks a lot for being coming on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Marvin. Always. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.